morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great Monday morning show for you today. I'm so glad to be joined again by my co-host, Bacha Ungar Sargan. Nice to see you, Bacha. Great to see you, Robbie. All right, well, we're going to have dueling radars later, but first, what are we getting to on the agenda? So it's election day again in Georgia tomorrow. Robbie will make his final predictions in the Peach State's Senate runoff race before voting begins. I will probably hedge my bets to keep egg <laughs> off my face. Um, plus, swing left's Yasmin Raji will join us. We'll discuss a new proposal from President Biden that could dramatically change how voters choose our next president. But first, the FBI has joined an investigation into a, quote, intentional, willful, and malicious attack on a North Carolina power station that left some 40,000 people without electricity this weekend. Officials say that gunfire was used to disable equipment at two Duke Energy facilities in Moore County. With no suspects identified, the county has declared a state of emergency and a curfew from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. local time. Local outlet The Pilot reported over the weekend that the attacks occurred concurrently with a drag show in the Moore County town of Southern Pines, where a number of protesters and counter-protesters had gathered outside on Saturday night. However, County Sheriff Ronnie Fields told reporters that police have found no evidence so far or any reason to believe that the two events are related. And I guess some people in the media are kind of looking desperately to find out a reason for them to be connected because that, I guess, would make for an exciting plot line. Uh, what, what, what have you learned about this, Bacha? So it seems that a local resident named Emily Grace Rainey, who's a former Army captain, posted an invitation to the drag show protest on her Facebook page. There have been a lot of people protesting this drag show um, on Saturday morning. And then on Saturday night, she posted, the power is out in Moore County and I know why. And then it seems that um, FBI agents visited her in her home. Uh, and um, But she, her, what her response was, so this is how she described it. Um, she wrote, sorry for the waste, for they wasted their time. I told them that God works in mysterious ways and is responsible for the outage. So um, to me, what's interesting about this is is that um you know, the media often makes this mistake. They think that when religious people say, um, you know, I know why this happened, this happened because of God, because God wanted this to happen, that that is somehow like um, an expression of their active involvement in something mm. or their desire for something, when actually it's just how religious people see everything <laughs> as being the work of, you know, the divine or what have you. So to me, it's, I don't, I mean, it doesn't seem at all like this person is involved. I think if she was involved, she seems like the kind of person who'd be very proud to admit that. Um, <laughs> Um, so, you know, I agree with you. It does seem like the media is trying to, mm. um, you know, create, you know, this connection between the drag show um, and this act of, you know, it could be potentially terrorism, right? If there was somebody out there with a gun trying to destroy something like, um, uh, um, um, you know, a power source. Uh, what do you make of this yeah. story, Robbie? No, I don't know. There were uh, there were other protests of drag events over the weekend. There was a drag time, a drag story time event in Ohio that was canceled because there were a lot of far-right protesters gathering, and then the, I guess the organizers thought it, it would no longer be safe, which, I mean, look, they have the right to—they have the right to have the event, and then they have, the protesters have the right to protest it, and they get to—they can march down the sidewalk if they want. You know, we've adjudicated this, I don't know how many times at the Supreme Court by now, that even, even, even far—even, you know, anti-Semitic— explicitly Nazi groups have the First Amendment ironclad right to march down 
the sidewalk towns in an intimidating and malicious manner, that is something we, we, we tolerate because we believe that the government should not have the power to say what to restrict what is allowable speech, what is not, you know, what assemblies are not okay, what kind of protests are not okay. No, we give wide deference. Now, if there's violence, if there's other law breaking, property destruction, et cetera, you don't get to do that. But if you're just marching, you're just being peaceful and loud outside, you get to do that. So, look, if people, I, I'm not, I, people are going to express their opportunity, their, their opposition to these events, and these events are going to go forth, that's fine. But, like, that is going to take place, right? Right, exactly. I mean, I was thinking about this more in terms of, um, you know, if you have somebody who, who wants to put a stop to something, um, you know, t taking out the power in a way is much closer to civil disobedience than taking up arms against the people themselves. Obviously, I'm not condoning it or supporting it. Um, but it does seem like um, I, at this point, there's no reason to connect the two things. And meanwhile, um, legislative researcher and trans activist Aaron Reed tweeted, quote, a massive convergence of right wing militants in Columbus, some armed, just shut down a drag holiday event. Organizers expected police to show. Unsurprisingly, they did not or they did dressed in black, yellow, Proud Boys and Patriot Front are emboldened after Club Q. And according to The Intercept, queer communities are welcoming armed far left protection, quote, after the Club Q massacre. Now, as you've covered at length here, Robbie, um, we still don't know the motive in the Club Q mm -hmm. massacre. We still don't know if that was an anti-trans, anti-drag, um, you know, act, a horrifying, you know, horrifying act, or if it was just the act of, you know, a personal act, somebody who's, you know, mentally, we don't know yet what the motivation no there was. But I have no um, problem so with far left people are, by, by the way, arming themselves. Um, actually, and, and there's a long tradition, not necessarily even far left, but of uh, uh, black people owning guns for self-protection in historically and in areas where they, the police can't be relied upon to offer protection to them or police have some kind of, kind of racial tension. Um, I mean, that's that's what that's actually what the Second Amendment is for. It, it can be for personal protection. It's fine. It should not be you know, portrayed as scary or sinister by conservative media or anywhere. That, oh, no, they're arming themselves. No, that's the right we say that everyone should have. This is not just a right for like far right protesters or something. It's right. for everyone. Right. Um, uh, I did hear about a story on Staten Island this weekend, um, which is a sort of famously working class community where uh, the public library was hosting a drag queen story hour. And again, Proud Boys showed up. There was a big mess there. Um, and just, again, one of these big cultural clashes that are happening around this flashpoint. Um, I, I wonder, though, I keep asking myself, you know, let's say, um, you know, there was a, a planned conversion therapy event, right? Something horrifying like that, that the right that the left finds horrifying, right? And a group of people, a group of, let's say, Antifa showed up and cut the power lines, right, to mm -hmm. prevent this thing from happening. Would we be judging that in the same way or would we be saying, look, you know, civil disobedience is messy and, and, and these kinds of things, you know, ha happen in this way? Yeah, I, I would not celebrate the cutting of the power lines in any cases, probably. <laughs> uh, you know, that can have uh, it also it's not selectively for just that facility. Right. This massively right, um, exactly. it causes can cause tremendous harm to to to, to other people. Um, you know, you have to. Yeah, there was a CNN reported a story about a family who had a baby who were desperately looking for a way to keep this baby warm because it was right. a very cold night and people lost 
power. It's the same thing with, when protesters block, sometimes when they block, uh, you know, roadways or tunnels or bridges or something, and you, you know, invariably, inevitably have someone in a kind of medical emergency scenario or someone who's going to give birth and needs to get through. This has happened, like, so many times. I'm like, well, no, our cause is more important, and which I think that it never comes off that way to, you know, kind of the, uh, the public at large. I, and I, I also saw the last thing I wanted to mention, a lot of people on social media describing those, uh, the, the Proud Boys and, you know, whoever else, the far-right protesters show up, you know, their, their faces are often covered now. Um, everyone's speculating, like, how many of those people are secretly um, FBI informants, right? Probably a large <laughs> number at this point. You should just assume anyone at, like, a right-wing event like that is, is, uh, is, work, is coordinating with uh, law enforcement. I mean, I'm kidding a little bit, but, like, not entirely, um, because, uh, you know, there's so many later we find examples of top law enforcement being, if not embedded in these groups, so aware of their activities because they're always engaged. Somehow, often, they get themselves into trouble or other criminal issues. Then the FBI gets them or, you know, someone gets them to report and inform on everything going on, and it's, uh, it's just kind of a, a funny... Uh, a funny a anyone on the right, like, who's, who's, who's goading you into, into, you know, civil war rhetoric or, you know, wants you to take up arms to do something like violent or criminal or even civil disobedience... Want to bet their government? <laughs> it's often the case. Right. Just right, have to say. Right. <laughs> right. And also, civil obedience is probably the disobedience is probably the wrong word. I mean, that I think is against the government, not against you right. know some sort of like private institution. And again, the story here is that there is zero evidence at this point yeah. that this was an attack against the drag show. And I do also want to just point out, like, there I I tried to find if there was evidence that this was like an all ages drag show or that there was you know it's some that children were invited to this in any way. Um, and I couldn't find any. And so to yeah. do this against just a drag show, you know, of consenting adults going to enjoy some burlesque. Like, I just think that that's, that would be much, much less understandable and, and, and excusable. Like, yeah. don't protest people for doing something that is just what they like to do if everybody there is a grown-up. I mean, there's really no excuse at that point, I don't think. Yeah, I don't understand either. All right, well, we will have those dueling radars on the Twitter files. Elon Musk, Matt Taibbi, some big news with that over the weekend. Stay tuned. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, on Friday, Elon Musk announced that he would release the Twitter files, a behind-the-scenes account of why the social media site prevented users from sharing the New York Post's infamous Hunter Biden laptop story. Now, that story, which was erroneously categorized by national intelligence experts as disinformation of dubious and possibly Russian origin, well, it's become the archetypical example of social media moderation gone awry. Musk gave the scoop to the independent journalist Matt Taibbi, someone we've interviewed repeatedly on Rising. We've been happy to ha feature his reporting. And now his report was published on Twitter itself in a somewhat confusingly ordered thread. The thread contains fascinating, however, screenshots of conversations between various content moderators and company executives as the laptop story debacle was unfolding in real time. But given how massively Musk hyped the revelations, the results are a little disappointing and mostly confirm, I would say, what the public already had assumed about the situation. A still unidentified employee or process flagged the story as unsafe and suppressed its spread, and then Twitter moderators devised a retroactive justification, violation of a hacked materials policy, for having taken such an extraordinary step in the first place. Then-CEO Jack Dorsey was largely absent from these conversations. Vijaya Gad, Twitter's former head of trust and safety, played a key role. Quote, 
None of this material is groundbreaking, however. It's already pretty well known. Now, that said, it's very useful to see some of these internal messages. They do confirm that Twitter's various departments, communications, moderation, senior management, horrendously mismanaged the entire affair. And they were not all on the same page either. Vice President of Global Communications Brandon Borman, for example, was immediately unconvinced by the hacked materials justification. Another employee, Deputy General Counsel Jim Baker, essentially felt that erring on the safe side meant suppressing the story until evidence emerged that it wasn't hacked. Well, this turned out to be extremely bad judgment. But again, the informed public already knew that the mess had been made by some combination of incompetence and employees' anti-Republican biases. The most interesting revelation in Tybee's thread is that Twitter top executives were warned over and over again that this decision was going to create a backlash like nothing they had ever seen before. Representative Ro Khanna, a progressive lawmaker, repeatedly emailed Twitter communications staffers to complain that the firm was violating First Amendment principles. He raised some very valid points in his communications with the company, though strictly speaking, the First Amendment does not apply in this situation, and he was complaining about the First Amendment. NetChoice, a tech industry trade association, explicitly told Twitter that this would be the company's, quote, access Hollywood moment, referencing the Trump access Hollywood moment from the 2016 campaign. Now, unlike Twitter, both Kana and NetChoice actually come off looking pretty good in all this. Taibi is a great journalist and should be commended for adding to the public's understanding of what went wrong here. And also kudos to Musk for attempting to shed more light on what truly was a low moment for the culture of free speech, if not the First Amendment itself, on the platform. And now, even if we're essentially in, again, did the butler do it territory, where the mystery's explanation is pretty much what everyone expected all along and largely already knew. But what is really telling for me about all of this is how appallingly progressive and mainstream media are reacting. Not only are many media figures saying, hey, nothing to see here, they're actively shaming Taibi for participating in the exercise at all. Wajahat Ali is a contributing writer for The New York Times who thinks that what Taibi did was disgraceful for some reason. He says Taibi is selling his soul for the richest white nationalist on earth. By that I take it he means Musk? And I assume by white nationalist, he means someone who would like a non-Trump Republican to win in 2024. The bar for what counts as a white nationalist keeps getting lower and lower. And also, this should go without saying, but just because revealing what went wrong under Twitter's previous management may benefit Musk right now, it doesn't mean it's wrong to do that. The American public deserves answers about how and why Twitter censored the Hunter Biden story. And we should be glad we're getting them no matter how it comes to us. The people who are mad that Taibi and Musk are telling you more about how it happened, they're mad because they don't want you to know what happened because it implicates them. Social media companies wrongly branded the Hunter Biden story as Russian disinformation because the media was screaming at them to do just that. The MSM were the ones who got it wrong, and they don't want you to remember that. By the way, here's what Wajahat Ali said about the Hunter Biden story at the time it was released. Hmm, wonder why he wants us all to move on so quickly. And by the way, he's not alone. There were so many media figures all scolding Taibi in unison for, quote, doing PR for the world's richest man. Here's NBC's Ben Collins, so-called expert on misinformation, thinking that Taibi is humiliating himself. MSNBC's Mehdi Hassan said the exact same thing. Here's yet another NBC News reporter suggesting that Taibi's work isn't as good as it was in his Rolling Stone magazine days. 
Rolling Stone magazine, by the way, called the Twitter files a snooze fest. Again, Rolling Stone would probably prefer that people not spend too much time on this or ask themselves questions like, what did Rolling Stone think about the Hunter Biden laptop story when it was released? Well, I have some receipts. Let's take a look at that. Oh, there you go. Vile, baseless conspiracy theories. Media figures don't want Musk or Taibbi or anyone else to dwell on the Hunter Biden laptop story because it's one of the most embarrassing collective media screw-ups in history. They pressured social media companies to suppress information. That was true because they were absolutely convinced otherwise. They were wrong then, and now they want you to kindly forget about it, please. And for me, that was almost a bigger lesson from, from what was, it, it was not what was being revealed the other night. It was then the reaction from mainstream and progressive media figures. I mean, the, the, the way they were describing Taibbi and what he was doing was just like insane, um, you know, disgraceful, shameful, promoting white nationalism, all from people who, if you look back, they were the ones, they were, they were among a chorus of voices that was shaming social media companies into making this decision specifically. And, and then we've seen that again with COVID stuff as well. With the COVID stuff, I think th there has been more of a lockstep government and media press pressuring social media companies. In the Hunter Biden laptop case, we're understanding that you know, while national law enforcement, some government officials, I think, had issued dire warnings, and then after the censorship said some things that didn't make any, you know, they all got it wrong too. I, from my understanding, it really the driving force, in addition to just the employees themselves, was their friends in mainstream media just screaming at them. I, I remember as soon as the, the Hunter Biden laptop story came out, there were you know people uh, in 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 media saying, "Oh my God, this is so harmful. This is Russian. This is you know this have, have social media companies have blood on their hands if they don't do something about it." And we're seeing those same people now reacting with a, "How dare you? How dare you bring this back up?" It's so telling. So I completely agree with all of that. But to me, that is why the Twitter files actually don't matter that much. Because the bigger story here is that even if they hadn't limited the spread of the story on social media, on Twitter, the mainstream media anyway would have repressed the story because they are so in the bag with the Democratic mm -hmm. Party, right? So to me, that that sort of the the um, you're connecting those two things, but I think those two things are sort of in tension with each other. Like the mainstream media's capture by a woke elite, right? The same woke elite that used to rule Twitter and reign Twitter and is the reason the story was suppressed. Like to me, that's a class story that is about class mm. solidarity much more than it is about a political narrative. And I wish the right would see it that way, would see that the 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 the, the thing that's criminal here, I'm using that word loosely, but you know, the thing that's criminal here is not that, you know, elite, well-off, influential conservatives don't get to have their say on this woke platform, that's bad and it's infuriating, right? But the real criminal problem is that like 80% of Americans, the entire middle class, the entire working class have been completely deplatformed. And those are the people that conservatives should be using their mm -hmm. energy to platform because they agree with them on a lot of issues, but not all issues. And so to me, it's th th that's the story. Here's the class story. And the other thing, I'm so glad you brought up Rokana. Um, he really, I think, emerges as the hero here, you know, going behind closed doors to advocate for the free speech of his political adversaries. I cannot point to a single other politician in today's landscape who I think would do that. Can you? I don't know. I 
Yeah, probably not. He, but he did. Yeah, he did a really, really good thing there. We've been happy to have him on the show. We'd love to have him on again to discuss it. But uh, yeah, absolutely, was really pleased to see him him saying, making some totally reasonable observations that you would hope someone else in politics would also have that like, hey, this is, you know, really in tension with kind of some principles of free speech that we have. It's probably likely to backfire. And that's the other, you know, takeaway I just want to put forth in all of this. I think there's no clearer example of censorship backfiring than this entire story. Um, you, know, you you mentioned how uh, how um, you don't think it it ultimately would have had an impact on the election, like, you know, who are the voters who are changing their mind based on this? I think, if anything, um, this story, the censoring of it made it seem way more important than it was, because then it was like, well, why is the truth being hidden from me? What is going on? And then it was about how, how, you know, woke cultural forces, mainstream forces, you know, want to hide the truth from you. And also just didn't work, because then there were thousands of stories about the decision that was made. So even if you couldn't read the Hunter Biden laptop story, well, now there's all these stories that are not being suppressed everywhere about the, the, the actions that Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, took. So more people were learning about it. It's a very clear example, to my mind, of the Streisand effect in practice, which is the famous example of, of the actress you know, trying to stop the media from, from uh, having pictures of her like beautiful palatial homes or something. And then, and then, so then there's coverage of how she's trying to stop that, and it gets out of hand. Etc. Um, all Definitely. right. Well, that's uh, that's us on Elon Musk. I'm sure we'll be talking about it more soon, and we'll have more rising right after this. Bacho, what's on your radar? At 6.34 p.m. on Friday evening, journalist Matt Taibbi began a lengthy Twitter thread, which he titled The Twitter Files. Twitter's new owner and CEO, Elon Musk, had given Taibbi access to a huge trove of documents related to Twitter's suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story after Taibbi agreed to certain conditions. What Taibbi found was further detail about a story we largely know. Twitter knowingly and actively suppressed the New York Post's reporting on the laptop. Taibbi reported that both the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign reached out regularly to ask Twitter to investigate and remove posts. But when it came to the Hunter Biden laptop story, Twitter went into overdrive, falsely categorizing the story as, quote, hacked materials early on to justify suppressing it and then locking prominent accounts that shared it and even barring the story from being shared in DMs. But perhaps the most surprising thing Taibbi reported was that the government was not behind the suppression of the laptop story. Here's the crucial quote from Taibbi. Although several sources recalled hearing about a general warning from federal law enforcement that summer about possible foreign hacks, there's no evidence that I've seen of any government involvement in the laptop story. This was not, however, the message Elon Musk took from the Twitter files in response to a tweet claiming that Taibbi had shown that the Biden team colluded with Twitter before the election. Elon Musk tweeted, correct. But this is exactly what Taibbi said he hadn't found in the Twitter files, or at least to the extent that the Biden team, quote, colluded with Twitter, so had the Trump team. But the idea that Biden and even the government or the deep state was involved in the Hunter Biden cover-up seems to be the message many have wrongly taken from Taibbi's reporting following Musk's lead. The most shared tweet in Taibbi's thread lists a few tweets from the Biden team asking Twitter to review with someone from Team Twitter responding, quote, handled these. Many are sharing this as a smoking gun of sorts. 
But if you put the links Team Biden was asking Twitter to review into a site that archives deleted tweets, as Christian Schneider did, you can see that one of them is a photo of the Biden family, and the rest are pictures of Hunter Biden's genitals, which we will spare you having to look at. Not quite the smoking gun it's being touted as. And yet, to Elon Musk, this was proof of the highest form of corruption. As he put it in a tweet responding to those examples, quote, if this isn't a violation of the Constitution's First Amendment, what is? I'm sorry, Elon, but not this. The Biden campaign actually comes off better than I would have expected. Of course, more might come out, but for now, it seems like they didn't ask Twitter to suppress the laptop story. Twitter did that all on its own. In other words, the Twitter files was just a more detailed version of a story we know well. Twitter worked very hard to suppress a story that Twitter employees thought made their preferred candidate look bad. Can a private company violate your First Amendment rights? Can a private company that is used by just one-fifth of Americans, where only 13% of Americans get their news, where only 17% of Republicans spend any time at all, where 97% of the content is produced by the top 25% of users, really sway an election? I'm skeptical at best. How many of you know someone who would have voted differently based on the contents of that laptop? Such a person is almost impossible to imagine. To be clear, I have no problem with Musk exposing this content, and he could not have chosen a better reporter than Matt Taibbi for his expose. Taibbi is the most nonpartisan journalist out there, someone I strive to be more like every single day. Indeed, few journalists would have made as clear as Taibbi did just what was not in the Twitter files. What the files do show is the same egregious behavior we already knew Twitter engaged in. They revealed how deeply captured the company has been by the left. And this understandably makes conservatives see red, but not everything that's unfair is unconstitutional or a threat to democracy. It can both be the case that Elon Musk is writing a grievous injury that's been done to high-profile conservatives in suppressing their journalism and content, and also be the case that Musk is inflating the importance of his work in an attempt to make Twitter more profitable. As Elon Musk well knows, the Biden election team could not have violated our First Amendment rights because it was not functioning as government. Neither could Twitter, a private company that hosts relatively few Americans in its purported public square. Again, Elon Musk knows this. He clearly did not feel he was violating Kanye West's First Amendment rights when he booted him for tweeting a swastika, which, by the way, is constitutionally protected. But there is a threat to Twitter being free, and it's Musk himself. As I've discussed at length here, Musk has extensive economic entanglements with a regime deeply hostile to America, so much so that he has closed his eyes to the genocide being carried out by the Chinese Communist Party in the Xinjiang region, where Musk infamously built a showroom for Tesla. He's also bowed to pressure to store data collected by his electric cars in mainland China, where it is subject to CCP surveillance. The most important question for Musk is, will freedom of speech on Twitter take a backseat to Musk's allegiance to China like Uyghur lives have? And this is the precise question he and his team have done everything to avoid answering. On Saturday night, we got a front row seat to how unwilling Musk is to address this point. Musk participated in a Twitter Spaces chat that had over 100,000 listeners when I joined who were encouraged to submit questions via DM. I sent mine over to multiple different addresses. 
This is what I wrote. I'm wondering about China. Musk's other businesses are very, very reliant on the largesse of the CCP to the extent of building a showroom for Tesla in Xinjiang. I love what he's doing with Twitter and super admire him for picking this fight for free speech, but I'm also worried about the influence the CCP has on him. In China, his record on free speech isn't good. What is he willing to say about that, about making sure Twitter won't be subject to pressure from the CCP? None were willing to pose my question. And the two times China came up during the discussion in the context of free speech and the recent protests, Musk was quickly rescued from having to address the question by sycophantic moderators who deemed the questions irrelevant and quickly changed the subject. Take a listen to this. Elon, you said some some really admirable things about uh, freedom of speech and your commitment to it and its role in the future of humanity. You didn't answer the question about supporting protesters in China and Iran. Is their freedom of speech, freedom of speech for Chinese people important? It's already for banned in, in China. Just, just so you know, like Twitter is inaccessible in China. You need VPN, so it's kind of a pointless question. So, so you, you don't think making it accessible for Chinese or Iranian? It doesn't matter. Oh, no, it's not, it's not, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not Elon. It's not Elon blocking it. So the person who asked that question, Tommy Veter of Crooked Media, says he was kicked out of the Twitter space right after. And his question was a good one. The fact that China bans Twitter is hardly relevant. A crusader on behalf of free speech should be able to say a kind word for China's protesters. More importantly, the question is not what Musk is doing for China's citizens, but what Musk is going to do to protect the speech of American citizens from the Chinese Communist Party. And that is something Musk simply will not answer. Very yeah. wise words, Bacha. I particularly <laughs> like how you point out the um, the First Amendment issues here at stake. Not quite First Amendment issues. I totally agree with you that it's great that Elon Musk is shedding more light. The more we can understand about what happened with the Hunter Biden laptop story debacle, the better. It was clearly bad. But does it violate the First Amendment? Honestly, you would make you'd have a better case that the Trump people asking Twitter to take stuff down violates the First Amendment because they were actually the people in charge of the government at the time. Um, Now, in reality, everyone makes, you know, content moderation requests. And I I think people in government, it depends how they're making it. It depends if it's accompanying some threat, you know, is publicly the government figure saying, you know, this company should be regulated or banned or broken up in case they give me what I what I want. And then they're also asking them to do something that might be a First Amendment issue. But clearly that wasn't the case at the time with the Biden people. So it's uh, it was weird to see people immediately go to that as if they haven't read the First Amendment. Like, it's very clearly about government speech. But this could be bad. Like, this could all be bad without it being specifically about the First Amendment, which which I agree that it is. And, and, you know, kudos to Elon and to Matt Taibbi, who you rightly point out is a terrific journalist. Um, I, I wish they had release this in some format other than Twitter threads, because I don't know about you, I had so much <laughs> trouble fo- following that, and then it breaks halfway through. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think when, when when Matt Taibbi wrote on Substack that he had to agree to certain conditions, I'm pretty sure that was one of them. I mean, I'm, I'm just guessing here. He says yeah. he will on Substack explain what those conditions were, but for now, I feel pretty certain that that was one of them, because he is um, he's, he's really good about um, Substack. He's really connected to the audience yeah. there and to his readership there, and the idea that he would have, you know, Musk is v- working really hard to get, you know, to make that a profitable business, right? So I, I feel that that will probably come out as one of the um, one of the conditions. I'm eager to hear what the other ones were, but I just have to say again, 
he could not have chosen a better journalist than Matt Taibbi. He really is the best, one of the best journalists of my generation. And I, I admire him so much. And I know that you're going to be talking a little bit about that in your radar. Yep. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. The Senate on Thursday derailed a proposal to give rail workers seven days of sick leave in a 52 to 43 vote. The measure floundered after it failed to garner enough support from Republicans to meet the 60-vote threshold to pass. Six Republicans joined Senator Bernie Sanders and most of their Democratic colleagues in voting in favor of it, with the exception of Joe Manchin. He was the only Democrat to vote it down. Lawmakers flopped on the sick leave measure, but they fended off a total rail shutdown, averting a nationwide rail strike that was due to happen this week if there was no deal between rail workers and operators. Under the deal that passed the House and Senate gives rail workers a 24% increase in pay over five years, payouts averaging $11,000 and one extra paid day off. Though the paid sick leave proposal failed, it does expose the divide within the Republican Party as it tries to paint itself as the party for the working class. The Biden administration, uh, so that's, um, you know, what do you make of this botch? I think this is an example in real time of, uh, of the Republican realignment to be the party of the working class. You know, an idea that sometimes I think it's deserved pushback because there isn't actually been a lot of policy difference. There has been, uh, you know, a focus on Republicans, culturally speaking, being a better fit for the working class, given how progressive socially and culturally uh, the Democratic Party's commitments because of its, you know, young, elite, woke kind of trendsetters dictating what, what those policies were going to be. But on the hard economic stuff, it's not, there's not been that much example of of it, of it changing or there being a break with the past, this could be that example. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this really does seem like evidence for what I'm sort of always trying to drive home, which is that the real divide in the Republican Party is not over Trump, but over Trump's protectionist, populist economic agenda. Uh, a, a group of Big, high-profile Republicans, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, saw here an opportunity to outflank the Biden administration on the left when it came to protecting working-class jobs. And they did that. They showed up and they did that. They voted with, you know, the vast majority of Democrats to try to protect uh, rail workers. And uh, this really, I, I completely agree with you. Um, there have been other examples. Um, Marco Rubio's Teams Act, for example, um, you know, which would give workers a seat at the table for any corporation making more than $1 billion a year. Um, you know, there have been a few other examples. Um, but this really was uh, a startling moment. And there's some really charming reporting about what happened on the Senate floor right after the vote, uh, you know, after Ted Cruz voted um, yes for the paid sick leave and he fist bumped Bernie Sanders and Senator Sanders said to him, I've always known that you were a socialist or something along those lines. Um, you know, the, look, it's very sad that this didn't pass. And my heart really goes out to the rail workers. They really deserve better treatment, especially given the record profits, billions, and billions of dollars that are made by the, ra the rail carriers. Um, and what they're asking for is not even that much. I mean, a lot of them will say we we take more unpaid sick leave. The problem is, is that when they take unpaid sick leave, they get penalized for it. Um, but but at the same time, while while my heart bleeds for them and it's horrible that this didn't pass, I think they we lost the battle. But in a way, I really do think that they that we're they're winning the war. I mean, the working class, if they can get real economic wins 
out of the Republican Party. And if the Republican Party really can start to see its future as being the future of the working class, um, that will be a huge victory for this country. Well, the Biden administration helped broker the deal, and CNN's Jake Tapper held Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg's feet to the fire when he interviewed him about why it failed to protect paid sick leave. Let's watch. But saying that they ought to have paid sick leave and then getting in there and saying to the, 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 the Warren Buffets of the world, give these guys paid sick leave or the White House is going to make you guys out to be the bad guys and you're going to be the ones that are forced to blink after your reputations take a number of hits. That's a different matter. We've heard from multiple union workers who feel like the Biden administration has let them down. Uh, Gabe Christensen, a freight railroad uh, brakeman who lives in Nevada, he told CNN, quote, here we have someone, meaning Biden, who touted themselves as the most labor-friendly president for many decades, and he basically just betrayed us. There really is no difference between Democrats and Republicans anymore. They're just feeding corporate greed, unquote. What do you say to Gabe Christensen? Well, if you don't think there's any difference, uh, you should look at the difference between this president who has advanced uh, good paying jobs, who has made sure the National Labor Relations Board is uh, able to do its job, who has put in uh, the uh, first card carrying union member uh, to be labor secretary in a generation, who has upheld everything from uh, Davis-Bacon wages to uh, the, the kind of working conditions to make sure that uh, unions can thrive because he believes strongly in American unions, in organized labor, uh, and is proud to be the most actively pro-union president in a generation. Again, that doesn't mean everybody uh, got everything that they wanted. What do you make of Mayor Pete's response there? I, I found that pretty, uh, I think that would be pretty frustrating for people who are upset about this policy to hear him say, oh no, but it's the most pro-union president ever because he's appointed the right people and et cetera, et cetera. Like, I don't think that gets the job done, does it? So to me, this was a perfect example of Again, the class divide. You know, when 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 elites talk about the economy, they talk about trade because that is the part of it that they engage with. That is the part of it that they benefit from. When the working class talks about the economy or thinks about the economy, they're thinking about jobs because that is the part that they most need. And those are obviously going to be in tension with each other over certain issues. China is a great example, right? Um, but this is another really good example of it. The Biden administration in this case sided with consumers. They really wanted to avert what would have been, of course, everybody would have suffered if there was a, a, you know, a shutdown, right? If there was a strike here, right? But who would have suffered the most would have been the consumers, right? Meanwhile, he sacrificed workers on that altar of making things better for the American consumer. And of course, there are consumers in all sectors of the economy, right? We're right? All everybody consumers. is a consumer. We're not all we workers. are all consumers, yeah. exactly. But at the same time, you know, there is a huge cost to continuously sacrificing the American worker to the American consumer. That's essentially what we're doing here. And I think that what we're seeing right now is really a, another realignment where that is going to keep being the Democrats' position. Whereas the Republicans, like we said, they saw here a real opportunity to say, no, we're going to side with workers over consumers at this point. And we're going to say the most important thing to this nation right now in this question is not that Americans get their Christmas presents, right? It's not that they, you know, get their things on time, but that this small sector of the American economy is so important to us. These workers are so important to us. We're going to side with them. Right. Because if it is that important, then 
shell out a little bit more for the workers to, I mean, it, it's such a minimal request. It's so in line with, you know, what everyone should enjoy. And I, I don't like the, you know, from, from my standpoint, I don't like the specter of kind of Congress coming in and intruding or the administration coming in and intruding on, you know, a labor dispute between actors who, you know, they should be able to resolve, the, the workers should be able to, you know, to, to advocate for better conditions, for better pay, for time off, et cetera, and work that out, and for, for the administration to come and put their thumbs on the scale, say, no, it's going to be like this, and you just have to stop so there'd be no strike because we can't deal with that. That doesn't really, that doesn't sit well with me either. So uh, I've been interested to see this um, play out, and, and I, I am glad they're getting, you know, they're getting the, the better pay, although I, I've heard people describe some of the guests we've had that it really is, um, it's, it's almost back pay, um, or is back pay, so... So not as, you know, not as wonderful as it seems. It's definitely but, uh, back pay. And also, I think, you know, um, in terms of, you know, when I talk to rail workers, actually, a lot of them are, are well paid. They don't feel that they're, you know, significantly underpaid, unlike many sectors of the American working class. What they want is to be able to spend a little bit more time with their families. Yeah. And what kind of a country are we where that is not a top priority? I mean, the American family Right. I mean, it's so closely tied with the economic fortunes of the working class, with upward mobility. And here you have these men who are just desperate to spend a little bit more time with their family. And, and, and Congress is saying, no, we're going to in we're going to intrude here. You know, the Biden administration is going to put its finger on the scale of saying no to that. I mean, it's just it's really deplorable. Mm. All right. Well, we will have more rising in just a minute. Please tune back in after these messages. With midterms behind us, the White House is looking ahead to the 2024 presidential election. President Biden recently met with the Democratic National Committee to propose a new primary season calendar. The new nominating process would go in this order, South Carolina, then three days later, New Hampshire and Nevada, then Georgia, then Michigan. Originally, Iowa and New Hampshire were first in the nominating process, but the tradition has faced backlash in recent years because they are two predominantly white states and they are not representative of the country. Joining us now to discuss is Executive Director of Swing Left, Yasmin Raji. Yasmin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Ravi and Batya. It's great to meet you. So how do you feel about this new potential schedule? Um, I'm happy just because Iowa should be punished for the <laughs> screw-ups uh, that we have come to uh, characterize of that state in, in the length of the counting, et cetera. But uh, what do you make of the new schedule? As a former Iowa resident, at a personal level, I'm sad. But uh, but in all seriousness, you know, it's, I'm uh, the executive director at Swing Left, and we don't take any positions in primaries. So uh, we are sort of waiting to see how this all goes. Um, but we also are an organization that really believes in democracy, small d democracy, and any actions that the party is taking that are going to advance democracy. And something that we saw and what we heard from President Biden was uh, his commitment to end caucuses because of their undemocratic nature, um, mm -hmm. particularly for working folks, taking the day off of work at specified times and mm -hmm. moving around a room. Uh, it is a process that uh, sort of in a, in a different era uh, may have made sense. But for where people are right now and the way that how many jobs people are working, it's just not something that is uh, that is tenable uh, from a small d democracy standpoint and also for working families. Um, so so we celebrate that and uh, and are excited to see where things end up. Mm. 
Uh, Yasmin, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, my first thought when I heard this was the big loser in this would be somebody like Bernie Sanders, right? Somebody on the progressive left who has really failed to get any traction with black voters who tend to be much more moderate. So I'm wondering, do you think that this is likely to have an impact on the kinds of candidates we're going to see from the Democratic Party pulling more to the center and, and away from the progressive left, perhaps? You know, I think that what we're seeing right now um, is that whether candidates are to the center or to the left, candidates on the Democratic side are tremendously united on trying to pass really big reforms, including, you know, the IRA this year, uh, the American Rescue Plan uh, last year. Um, and so that's something that we find found is a very unifying uh, theme this cycle. And this midterm cycle, you know, at Swing Left, we've got volunteers on the left and on the right, and we support candidates, uh, sorry, not on the left and on the right, on the left and to the center within the Democratic Party, but within the Democratic spectrum, uh, really spanning a wide array of ideologies. And across that array of candidates in the Democratic Party and across that array uh, of volunteers, we're really finding that people are frankly exhausted uh, with uh, the stalemates that they are seeing uh, among Republicans that we're worried are going to continue uh, in this election. And whether it's about the presidential election, whether it's about down-ballot elections, whether it's about these past midterms, what volunteers and candidates alike really want to be doing is figuring out what are the solutions for American families. Uh, and at Swing Left, we're really proud to support candidates in their general elections uh, who are ready to get things done uh, for American families. This uh, past election was such a better result for Democrats than I think many people expected, Absolutely. almost everyone expected. Um, Joe Biden, I think, deservedly getting a lot of credit for that, actually. Uh, maybe also the calm strategist for Democrats, the whole democracy rhetoric, abortion, et cetera, everything they were doing. People said maybe that wasn't going to work or try to pick holes in it, but it, it appears to have worked. You know, what is your perspective on the success of the messaging, Joe Biden turning out to even in the, the face of some economic issues, a lot of frustrations people have? people sticking with him or liking him better than pundits do or that the, the, the dialogue or the political narrative expects them yep. to? You know, what's your view of that? I mean, I think the biggest lesson for us um, about this midterm is that when the polls look uh, doom and gloom, the best solution is to organize. And I think that so much of the pundit class was really emphasizing that there was no chance to win. And what we heard time and time again at Swing Left from volunteers on the ground was that's not what they were hearing on the ground. They were talking to Republicans. They were talking to independents. And they were talking to Democrats at the doors. And they were hearing a lot more enthusiasm uh, about what this election was about and also a lot of real anger about the MAGA takeover of the Republican Party. And so we've seen that in the results. I think this was a real referendum on uh, the MAGA wing of the Democratic Party. But we also saw, I mean, you brought up, I'm so glad that you brought up abortion rights. This is an issue that 77% of Americans agree on um, at a high level of making sure that there is a constitutional right to abortion and that people can have access to a safe and legal abortion. And what we've seen in so many states is that the Republican legislatures have taken things far too far Places like Georgia, which I know we're going to talk about later, passing things like six-week bans, which are, you know, before most women mm -hmm. know that they're pregnant. Um, and with the overturning of Roe, I think that really showed voters all across the country that this is, you know, what's happening in this country is far out of step uh, with where mainstream Americans are, whether they're Republicans, Democrats, or independents. Mm. Yeah, Yasmin, I could not agree with you more about, you know, what you just said about abortion. I think you're definitely right about that. 
Um, I wanted to ask you, though, you know, with the with the paid, seven days paid sick leave vote that we just had in the Senate um, for rail workers, mm. you had six um, very prominent, um, mm. some of them very MAGA Republicans joining with um, nearly all uh, Democrats, except for Joe Manchin, um, to give paid sick leave to these rail workers and, and not marginal folks, right? Marco Rubio, um, t- Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley. Um, I'm wondering, do you think that there is any opportunity there for kind of realignment around economic populist goals that might be um, in our near future? Yeah, I think uh, Senator Sanders said, uh, Ted Cruz, you know, I've always known that you were a socialist. Uh, so, um, you know, I think um, what what Americans uh, all around the country are thirsty for is solutions. Um, and I really think that in a moment where we're entering a divided Congress, uh, as, as Robbie mentioned, uh, you know, these midterms shaped out for Democrats far better than we could have ever imagined. And our hope at Swing Left and what we hear from volunteers is that there's a real hope that uh, in a moment where even in a divided Congress, even with uh, all of the, the despair that, that folks may feel about our body politic, that there is some effort to center working families to find solutions because people are struggling and these should not be partisan issues. Now, that is our hope and our aspiration. I think um, my concern is that um, I, I really, really worry that um, the takeover of the Republican Party by the MAGA extreme wing has disincentivized um, any real sort of bipartisan uh, work. And what we're seeing is that, you know, the only folks that really are offering solutions and that are supporting supporting democracy at scale at the federal and at the state level are Democrats in this moment. Now, I hope that I am wrong, because I think what the, what we all share as a priority is uh, is really that, that solutions are found for people and that uh, families that want to put food on the table are able to do so. Families that want to you know, have a, a dignified life with a living wage are able to, to find that. Um, but I just think increasingly the Republican Party has gotten so extreme and has gotten so co-opted uh, by the Trump wing of the party um, that I am not going to hold my breath, but I do hope for that. And then in 2024, if there is not, um, you know, that that sort of sensible work uh, on the Republican Party, I think we'll see the the results in the 2024 polls when Democrats, like they did this election, uh, are going to continue to fight to make sure that there's actual solutions for for working families. Well, speaking of Donald Trump, before we let you go, we want to get your take on this from former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki sharing her thoughts on former President Trump's third run for office. Let's take a listen. I mean, I I think Democrats and sane Republicans underestimate Trump at their own peril, because in order for Trump not to win the nomination, there has to be a better alternative. That's how primaries work, right? Ron DeSantis, this man, he's either the savior or he's currently at his peak. Mike Pence, with all due respect, didn't exactly light the world on fire politically before he was selected by Donald Trump to be his running mate. So the question is, who's the alternative? Trump has some evil charisma that helps him win the nomination. (laughs) The nomination process is long. What is going to happen here? And my view is people should not underestimate yeah, I don't think Mike Pence has any chance. It's it's Trump or it's DeSantis. DeSantis, though, I, I, I don't know if he's peaked. He, he hasn't peaked in terms of name recognition. He's well known to conservative media, but he's going to become better known to the to the public at large. Um, 
How are Democrats thinking about – probably there's a perverse hope that it's Donald Trump because he's been beaten by Democrats kind of soundly, almost twice mm. almost now, mm-hmm. for, for counting the, uh, the midterm result as having had something to do with Trump's influence, whereas someone like DeSantis had a really huge victory in mm. Florida. It was really the, almost the only good news mm. that Republicans had. Um, is, there a, is there a perverse desire for it to be Trump, even though Democrats hate Trump? Mm. but think he might be beatable than any alternative? You know, I think something that we saw this election cycle, as you know, is that the cancer of Trumpism really metastasized, not just in the federal candidates that we saw, but also in the state candidates. So we were in an election where 60 percent of the the Republicans on the ballot, or sorry, 60 percent of Americans had an election denier on the ballot, um, and a third of the Republicans running this cycle were flat-out election deniers. So not people who were sort of Mm -hmm. flirting with the concept of election denial, but were flat-out hardcore election deniers. And so I think what that tells me is that uh, it's not about Trump anymore. It's not whether it's Trump at the top of the ballot, whether it's DeSantis, whoever it is, there is a true, uh, a truly concerning anti-democratic, small d democratic um, cancer, frankly, um, that is running through the Republican Party. And that's why I feel really confident, just like we saw in this midterm cycle, Democrats broke from any historical trends broke from all conventional wisdom in standing up against that. Um, and Republicans and independents were fed up, too. And that's why, you know, rep- uh, Democrats did really, really well with independence this cycle. And I know in 2024, whether it's Trump, whether it's DeSantis, whether it's Ted Cruz, whoever it may be, um, I feel really, really confident uh, that because the Republican Party has gotten so extreme, Democrats are going to have a strong showing. Um, and we'll see who they pick on the Republican side. Well, we'll see about that. Yasmin, thank you so much thank for joining so- much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Batya. Thanks, Yasmin. We'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. In January, we covered here how the self-described Freedom Convoy protests in Ottawa, Canada, against pandemic health measures and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government. Big trucks and other vehicles blockaded roads, including one in front of Parliament, which paralyzed the nation's capital and slowed trade at U.S.-Canada border crossings for weeks. Trudeau was forced to testify before a public inquiry on his decision to invoke the Emergencies Act to clear out protesters. The emergency power had never been used before. The inquiry revealed the Biden administration's large role in shutting down protests. Frantic calls were made by Washington to Ottawa, including from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg to his Canadian counterpart, Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabara. Al-Gabara testified that Buttigieg initiated the call and the interaction was, quote, unusual. President Biden also had direct calls with Trudeau, reportedly alluding to truckers threatening to disrupt the Super Bowl in Los Angeles. The White House also requested daily updates on the protests, and three days later, the Emergencies Act was invoked. Joining us now to discuss is spokesperson for the Benjamin Dichter Freedom Convoy and author of Honking for Freedom, the trucker convoy that gave us hope, B.J. Dichter. Welcome. There's the book. There Thank go. you so Thank much you for joining much us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, our pleasure. So tell us, uh, tell us what the book's about and uh, why this uh, cause is so important to you and what, what people need to know about it. Well, the book itself is about all the good and positive things that occurred during the Freedom Convoy that many in the legacy media uh, chose to ignore intentionally. And uh, it's really quite heartwarming because it shows people from across the political spectrum coming together, irrespective of identity, political worldview. We all agreed at that point that we need to come together and support each other 
around this movement, which was about peace, love, unity, and freedom. And when I put together the initial messaging for the convoy, I hearken back to my teenage years, going to Grateful Dead concerts and to Fish concerts and you know, understanding that culture of loving each other and having people who have completely different, you know, worldviews, but we can agree to love and support one another. In this case, it was for a cause to remove the data tracking app and the mandates that caused those apps. Yeah, I, BJ, I have to say, like, it, the, the watching that, covering that, reporting on it um, from afar, it was it was one of these moments where it was so clear to me what the right side was. I mean, I felt that we were watching the biggest labor action in certainly, you know, in, that I had ever seen. Um, and immediately the response from the powers that be, from Trudeau, from government, from the mainstream media here in the U.S. and certainly in Canada was, these people are Nazis. And it was just a perfect encapsulation of something I think happens a lot, which is um, whenever the class divide threatens to be exposed, they call the people who ha are on the wrong side of it bigots. And I, I guess my question to you would be, I know what it was like to watch that. It was horrifying. What was it like to experience that? Well, let me answer by pulling out, uh, you know, my, my Magen David, so you can all see that uh, me being a Nazi is, is definitely a stretch. Um, and I said in uh, one of the many interviews that unlike Prime Minister Blackface, some of us actually have relatives that are still buried in mass graves in Europe. And it's quite insulting and quite disgusting. But that's all they have because there's never any policy there's never any ideas and in this this particular instance there was never even even an attempt an attempt to talk to us and reach out to us because all branches of government were blaming each other this is what we learned in the commission and trying to defer responsibility to one another and then when nothing was getting done they just you know prime minister uh, blackface just brought down the ham the hammer and decided it's time to crush the most peaceful protest in Canadian history, full of soup kitchens and bouncy castles and saunas and hot tubs and barbecues and all that sort of stuff. And the only um, violation that I could see the entire time was perhaps parking infringements. So this is what we've done now in Canada. When there's parking infringements, we introduce Canada's version of martial law. And it's come to the point that these people are so incompetent that they're dangerous. Yeah, it's really incredible, especially given how, at least in the U.S., you know, protesters were treated so differently depending on the cause. We had a whole summer of of outrage over, uh, you know, unjust uh, police uh, killings and this, uh, you know, marching, protesting in the midst of the pandemic that was that was endorsed very tacitly, very publicly, even by health officials who otherwise were recommending people never leave their homes for any reason, saying, well, well, this is an important cause, so go go forth. But then when you had protests against the pandemic measures much later, or sometimes happening contemporaneously, this was treated like, you know, an existential threat to, to the health of, of people everywhere. The people were going to die because of this. You'd have blood on your hands for condoning it. Um, you know, have you taken note of the different way protesters were, were treated? Absolutely. And, you know, the people that were there protesting, our truckers, a large swath of them were either from the Sikh community or from Eastern European descent or, you know, recent immigrants from uh, Eastern Europe within the past, because a lot of those people 
uh, in trucking in the company that I work with. It's mainly people from uh, from Poland and Belarus. So they understood the um, the encroachment of government that violates our rights to free speech. And, you know, I'll tell you something. When I came out of my testimony during the commission, there was a woman holding an LGBT flag uh, with a Hong Kong sign calling us terrorists. Benji, you're a terrorist. You're all terrorists and this and that. And you know what I did? I turned on my Instagram and I turned around and I said, don't be angry at her. The Freedom Convoy protected her right to free speech, just like it protects our right to free speech. She's probably a wonderful person, in my view, just very confused. So it's really scary that those in power not only have forgotten the values and the importance of free speech, but at the same time, they hold all the political power, but they play the victim card. You don't get it both ways. You don't get to be in power, but also claim to be the victim. But that's what that's the state of our politics um, in Canada and the U.S. And this is not a partisan thing. It's not about left versus right. This is about people in control who think they're entitled. And anybody who speaks up to them or challenges them, they automatically declare themselves the victim. And that culture needs to stop. I think that's so beautiful what you just said, that the person calling you a terrorist, her free speech is the thing you were standing up for. Um, that, you know, the irony there where, you know, you were protesting fascistic measures of demanding that people who spend 99% of their days alone in their trucks put something in their bodies that they didn't want to and that they didn't need, that you were protesting, you know, actual fascistic measures and you were called fascists. And then the fascism on the other side just amped up and amped up and, 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 and um, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's just systematic um, uh, attempt to deprive you of your civil rights, um, your civil liberties with the invoking the Emergencies Act, which was completely unjustified. Um, did you foresee that happening when you guys went into it? In your book, Honking for Freedom, the trucker convoy that gave us hope, um, you, you talk in the beginning so beautifully, you describe how this came about. Um, tell us a little bit about that and tell us, did you foresee this happening? The, 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 the absolute... Um, um, uh, just complete breakdown of the government in terms of meeting your needs. Well, never accuse me of uh, believing that the government is in any way competent. That's just kind of my worldview. My father was a teacher, so I've grown up around government, and uh, I'm a little bit skeptical, if you call it that. In terms of the organic movement growing this large, uh, I got to tell you, I tried. And when Tamara Leach called me, I said to her, uh, and we'd been friends for many years, I said, okay, Tamara, like, how big do you want it to be? Like, I can make it pretty big. I got a media strategy that I think will work. And she said, let's go as big as we can make it. Now, did we imagine it would go global and there would be convoys in 30 plus countries? That would have been a little bit of a stretch or the $25 million that we total uh, raised of which 1.2 million was in Bitcoin. Uh, we wouldn't have imagined uh, that as well. So I think it was a success in that respect. But in terms of the Emergency Measures Act, and this is for our friends on the left and the right, Trudeau called the Emergency Measures Act on the federal level and froze our bank accounts, my bank accounts included. And by the way, not just bank accounts, credit cards, lines of credit, corporate account, everything. He couldn't transact at all. I couldn't buy myself a cup of coffee. But two days before... 
the premier of, uh, of Ontario, a conservative, invoked the Emergency Measures Act two days prior to Trudeau. And this was at a time where this conservative, Doug Ford, you famously know his brother in the United States, uh, was moving towards introducing passports to go to the grocery store and to go get to go to the pharmacy. So, I, I mean, I don't I, I don't want to let people get away with on the, you know, the team blue, the conservative side that, oh, it's just Justin Trudeau. There's no question. Justin Trudeau is a serious, serious problem and should be nowhere near power. But I think the same is to be said for on the opposite end of the aisle on the provincial level. Hmm. BJ Dichter, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your book and your movement. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, is suspended from Twitter again after he posted a swastika on the site. The tweet was deleted before the rapper's account was shut down. Twitter CEO Elon Musk said the post violated the platform's rule against the incitement of violence. This is according to the New York Times. West drew more widespread criticism after he praised Adolf Hitler in an interview with far-right theorist Alex Jones on his InfoWars commercial or program earlier this month. Um, West, who goes by Ye, said, I like Hitler, I love Jewish people, but I also love Nazis. Ye added, Ye added, every human being has something of value they bring to the table, especially Hitler. YouTube is working to remove posts of West's interview with Jones. <laughs> it's pretty uh, incredible to be being interviewed by Alex Jones. In a, this is probably a situation that's never happened before, where <laughs> Alex Jones is the reasonable moderate in the discussion. Because he kept trying to go back to, well, well, well Nazis are bad, though. I, I, don't, like, I don't like Nazis. <laughs> and then Ye would say, like, well, what's so wrong with Nazis? Uh, pretty, uh, pretty incredible stuff. Yeah, there was this moment where Alex Jones was saying to Ye, they call you a Nazi and that's so wrong. You're not a Nazi. And Ye goes, well, actually, (laughs) and then starts praising Hitler. Look, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there saying, look at the, you know, the rise of anti-Semitism. They're coming out of the woodwork. They're crawling out of the sewers. I feel the exact opposite. I feel like I have never in my life seen such an outpouring of support for the Jewish community disgust with people who would say such ugly things like this. And I think it was also very instructive because, you know, a month ago, two months ago, right, when Kanye was just asking questions about how many Jews there are in this industry or that industry, a lot of people were still defending him, right? You know, and it just kept getting progressively worse and worse and worse until he's out here actually defending Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And, you know, it was just so interesting because you could see at every point him sort of like hemorrhaging the support of people who were sort of trying to see what he was saying in good faith and say, look, you should be able to ask questions. You should be able to ask questions, right? Turns out that the person asking these questions, though, also admires Hitler. I'll just say one more thing, which is that, um, you know, somebody tweeted if he had just kept saying globalists instead of Jews, the right would have continued to defend him. And somebody responded to that and said, yes, and if he had just kept saying Zionists instead of Jews, the left would have continued to defend him. And I think that's absolutely true, right? It's a really great point because what you see there is, of course, there are 
plenty of anti-Zionists who are not anti-Semitic. And of course, there are plenty of people who criticize globalism who are not anti-Semitic. But there are also a lot of people who are deeply anti-Semitic, who really admire Hitler, who use those words as euphemisms for what they're trying to say. And I'll just give one example of that. I want to hear your response. Um, Jeremy Corbyn at one point was giving a talk and he said, you know, the problem with Zionists is they don't have a sense of irony. Right now, that statement makes no sense about Zionists because it's a political ideology. Right. It makes right. a lot of sense when you realize he was really talking about Jews. Right. And right. I think that that was, is what made this so instructive is now that is so clear to everybody. Everyone saw this happen in real time, like the devolution from legitimate, perhaps questions to admiring Hitler. And I just can't help but feel grateful that this happened in the public sphere and that the response has been so overwhelming um, against this kind of hate speech. But what do you make of the, so the moderation, so I agree with everything you said, but the moderation decision specifically around the image of the swastika and then Elon saying that was incitement to violence and that's why it, it was going to be taken down. Again, look, private company so he can have whatever policies he wants. I think we've just kind of, we're coming around to the point where Twitter is a monarchy controlled by Elon Musk. So if the policies don't seem consistent or don't make sense to you, well, who cares? He's the, he's the king of Twitter. Um, it wouldn't be, but if, you know, incitement to violence is a legal standard. So if he's, if he's thinking of it the way the legal standard would be, of course, just wearing a just displaying or having or wearing or showing a swastika would not be incitement to violence. That would be like incitement to violence is not protected speech under the again, under the constitutional framework, which doesn't apply here. But if we're pretending that it did, this would that would not be incitement to violence. You can you can display a swastika and not and, and you would not be suffering legal consequences, you wouldn't be disrupted from that in a, you know, in a public place. So if, if he wants to claim that he would, what he probably should have claimed is that I guess Twitter doesn't have a policy against promoting or sharing violent iconography or iconography of certain extremist groups. I could see how that could get dicey. And I, and I don't know that they have that policy. I don't know. Could you tweet a picture of a swastika before? I'm sure you could. I'm sure it comes up in news stories about far right demonstrators, about Nazi organizers. If they're wearing swastika armbands or something, they'd be in the photo for an article that would appear on Twitter. So I, I don't know that that, you know, fine to say, I guess what I sense really is that Elon knows Kanye and is, thinks this is not healthy for him and we probably just didn't want him on the platform. But uh, I don't know. What did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court has been extremely clear that, yeah. um, you know, being, you know, Nazi symbols are protected speech, right? So so I think that Elon Musk is trying to have it both ways. On the one hand, he wants to say that Twitter is going to be a platform that represents free speech, that represents, you know, First Amendment rights. Yeah. But then on the other hand, he's making business decisions. You cannot get an advertiser to advertise on a platform where their ad might appear on top of a swastika, right? So he's trying to sort of have it both ways. He wants to make it profitable. But of course, as Twitter's previous owners found out very quickly to make it profitable, you know, you have to make certain decisions that have nothing to do with free speech and everything to do with business. Now, of course, the previous owners, previous management went way too far. They, they treated basically every conservative as a Nazi until proven otherwise. Right. That was sort of their 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 point of view, which was terrible. But, you know, I think Elon Musk, that's that's sort of why it's so grating when he goes on and on about free speech, because, you know, at the end of the day, he wants to turn 
Twitter into a profitable business, profitable business. I think it was, I, 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 you know, a business decision about whether to take down a swastika or not. I think Twitter as a private company has the right to make that decision. Don't tell me that it's incitement to violence. The Supreme Court was very clear about right. that. It's not. You know, and then was he right to suspend his account? I don't think so. I think it's really good that this is all coming out, like I said. So mm. because the truth is, is that the best response to hate speech and bad speech is good speech, more speech, having it out in the open. Right. Can you imagine if if Ye had been deplatformed from the first thing he said about, you know, DEFCON 3 on the Jewish people, we wouldn't have seen all this unfold. We wouldn't have known what had happened, right? We wouldn't right. have known where his head was at. And he's running for president right now. Not that he's going to get anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> well, so I think that front, was a mistake by Musk. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so according to the Daily Beast, far-right commentator Milo Yiannopoulos has actually been fired from West's informal 2024 presidential campaign after some infighting with the rapper. Now, Yiannopoulos insists he chose to leave Ye's political team on his own. He also told the Daily Beast, quote, Ye and I have come to the mutual conclusion that I should step away from his political team. I will continue to pray for Ye and all his endeavors. And in more news, Kanye West is no longer acquiring Parler, the conservative favorite social media platform. The company said on Thursday, they tweeted, the company has mutually agreed with Ye to terminate the intent of sale of Parler. This decision was made in the interest of both parties in mid-November. Um, you know, Yiannopoulos was also taking credit for having tricked Trump, right, into sitting down with Fuentes, right, after Ye, you know, everybody confirmed that Trump didn't know who Nick Fuentes was at this, you know, accursed dinner that Trump sat down. <laughs> to um, Yiannopoulos then came out and said, yes, I tricked him. I don't believe that for a second. I mean, I think he's trying to take credit for what was reported, which was that Trump didn't know who these people were, you know, after the fact. So Taking credit now, for other know, people's work is Milo's entire existence. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I just have to say, um, you know, I think that the, the, the Democrats out there saying that Trump still has a shot, I mean, this is it for him. He, mm -hmm. he sat down with a person, he had dinner with a person who a week later came out and praised Adolf Hitler. He's finished. And I, I you know, I, I'm, I try not to make prognostications because I'm always wrong, but I have, I think, been right about this consistently on this show for a year. I've been saying, I think DeSantis can beat him in a primary. And I just don't see how he recovers from this. I don't buy it that all of the Republicans were, you know, secretly harboring sentiments for white nationalists. You've seen leadership on that front from Mitch McConnell. You saw how they treated Steve King. I mean, it's just not the case. And here it's just so apparent. I mean, I, I just don't see how Trump comes back from this. Of course, I could be wrong, but I, to me, that's a really big headline that, you know, nobody's yeah. reporting because I, I did wishful not... thinking they want to run against Trump, you know? Yes, I think that's true. And I did not see a lot of love for Trump's statement um, from the MAGA, uh, among the MAGA faithful. I did not see a lot of love for Trump's recent outburst on Truth Social, you know, responding to the, I think responding to the Twitter files saying, well, now we, we so we should suspend the Constitution and hold a new election or just declare that I won or so like saying things that are so that that no, you can't just absolutely, you know, wants to scrap the Constitution. That's not a winning message in conservative circles. I mean, he phrased it in an almost you'd think it was coming if it was not about about Trump and about, you know, wanting to have won or claim he'd won the election when he hadn't. You would think it was coming from like. You know, someone who thinks the Constitution, like a leftist, the Constitution was written by slave owners and should be thrown out like that kind of perspective. Uh, but it's Trump saying it, not something right. The, the right or conservatives want to embrace. And I was not seeing a lot of people going along with it. I was seeing a lot of he's done. We need to break with him. But, uh, 100%. but I've thought they were going to do it in the past and they've not done it. Maybe this time, this time now that they have a 
a conceivable replacement for Trump in Ron DeSantis. Uh, we, we could see it. But we will be paying attention, and of course, there's, there will always be the yay presidential campaign, although they will not have uh, Parler or the contributions of Milo Yiannopoulos. So sad. So sad. More rising right after this. With only one day left until Election Day 2.0 for Georgia voters, still a close race. One new CNN poll shows that Democrat Raphael Warnock is only four points ahead of Republican opponent Herschel Walker. Both neck and neck for Georgia's seat in the U.S. Senate, the poll suggests that 52 percent of likely voters will vote for Warnock, with 48 percent of likely voters going to Walker. Continuing in the runoff election, inflation and the economy are the most important issues to Georgia voters. Former President Barack Obama was even in Georgia last week to encourage voters to cast their ballots for Warnock. While speaking at the rally last Thursday, Obama had this to say about Warnock's opponent. But I also had to acknowledge that I did not think he had either the competence, the character, the track record of service that would justify him representing Georgia in the United States Senate. Now, if, if you had forgotten what I said the last time, it's okay because you just have to wait a minute. He reminds you every time he opens his mouth. So I don't know what you're thinking, Bacha, but I think it's over for Walker. I'm going to predict a Warnock win at this point. I don't see how Republicans rally to get Walker over the finish line, given that, uh, it, well, it doesn't matter for the, the stakes are low because the Senate is already solidly in Democratic hands uh, with the results elsewhere, with the result in Pennsylvania, et cetera. And also, you know, uh, Brian Kemp not on the ticket because he already won. And if anything, he was going to he would have helped drag Herschel Walker over the finish line because he's more popular than Walker is. You know, he easily won his reelection. Um, I, I think Republicans are going to be demoralized going into this vote. I don't think they've been given more reason to vote for him than during the first round. So, and g given all that, incumbency is an advantage. It's worth something. So, I think this is probably going to be a reelection for Senator Warnock. And how do you feel about that, Robbie? How do I feel about it? <laughs> what do you mean by yeah. that? How would I what vote? I'd be voting for the—my uh, candidate got knocked out, the Libertarian Party guy. Uh, Chase Oliver, I believe is his name. He's great. Uh, mm -hmm. I would have voted for him in a heartbeat. Uh, he's actually showed some <laughs> interest in being our national LP candidate, so I hope he runs and uh, look forward to hearing more from him. Um, Look, I, yeah, neither Warnock nor Walker are candidates um, who I have a lot of um, uh, interest in. You know, at, at the very least, I like to see, you know, if I'm going to go out of my way and, and voice support for a main, main, for a main party candidate, a candidate of one of the two main parties, I want to see them catering to my vote. How are they trying to, you know, talk to me and, and, and my issues? I don't see either of the candidates in this race doing that, honestly. I, I, Warnock is, I think, a very standard issue, progressive Democrat. Walker, he, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't ascribe to him very sophisticated ide ideological views on anything. I wouldn't say he's really a libertarian. I wouldn't even say he's really part of the new right. I don't think he has a deep kind of intellectual grasp of where to take the Republican Party. Um, honestly, he got this endorsement because of his friendship, of, of loyalty to Trump. There's one thing he cares about, it seems to be loyalty to Trump. I don't really want to reward that. That said, Warnock does, also does not support policies I, li I like. So. 
I'll be just kind of twiddling my thumbs as the <laughs> results come in. Doesn't matter either way to me. I think it was really interesting to see um, Georgia voters get to choose between two black candidates um, on both um, um, tickets. Um, you just love to see it. I mean, you just love to see people having options sure. and people having choices. Um, I, I I didn't feel that um, uh, Walker <laughs> was a, a suitable candidate. Um, and I think that it was just another example of Trump choosing the celeb over probably other options that he could have had. But I have to say, I do think that in terms of giving black voters more choices, this is how the Republican Party makes a start doing it. This was a bad choice. But the idea... Um, that, you know, diversity matters. Mm -hmm. That's not that's not a woke idea. Uh, you know, I, I think that that's that's a really good idea. Um, give people somebody that they um, can admire and see themselves reflected in. Um, I, I, I think that's really important. So I, I kind of I, I, I'm not sure that I, I would have wanted to see Walker win, but I'm glad that um, that that is the choice that people were given. I think that's really interesting and really important. Yeah, it, it's uh, sure it's historical to see right two both candidates being uh, being minorities being black men um, that you know shows some level of uh, of progress you know that's not you know we don't want to say well there's no racism because there's been a black president something like that but uh, yeah it is uh, it's significant it's actually it's significant than how little we talked about that right that wasn't something talked about in this race a lot of look it's two totally. black candidates because it's you know kind of anyone <laughs> we've 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 lowered how salient race is as a as an issue for voting on and raised how salient like just the utter like locked in <laughs> uh, brutal political struggle between the two parties that has raised right. so now no one is saying oh i couldn't vote for a, i mean some people out there, but it's not a significant number of people saying, oh, I couldn't vote for a, a, a black man or like I just have to stay home because there's two black people. Right. It's no, I can't let a Democrat win. I can't let a Republican win. That is everyone's top concern that, to be clear, has some negative has some negative trade offs that everyone is so kind of stuck into their stuck in their club and, and, and so hateful toward the other side. But, uh, yes, it has made it has made all the other issues uh, less uh, less significant in a, and, and that's a good thing because we want race and racism to be less significant in my book. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And what I would say to Republicans is like, stop going for the easy, you know, the celebs like, you know, Walker or Kanye West, right? Go into the black community, find talent, nurture it, speak to the people, right? There, there's, there's plenty of other options there and people um, who need a choice. I mean, I'm not saying I, I'm not really um, committed one way or the other to who people vote for, which party they vote for. But black, the black community should have a choice like the rest of us. And they mm -hmm. don't yet feel like they do. And that's not their fault. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the, 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 the result of just a failure of investment in those communities. As always, you know, I feel like the left has abandoned them to intersectionality, to cater to every other minority group except the black community and the right, you know, just never thought they had a chance. And so they never invested. Um, and this is, you know, the, the whole thing about, you know, elevating Kanye, elevating Walker is about shortcutting that when what you need is to do the work. It's a lot of work. It's very hard and get started now because it's not OK that both sides have just abandoned these communities. Mm. All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, Revolutionary Black Network Savvy Sabs will join us to discuss Hakeem Jeffries' ascent to House Minority Leader. Very exciting stuff there. Uh, we'll be looking forward to the show tomorrow. Unfortunately, without Bacha, it was wonderful as always having you on Monday's Bacha. Thank you so much for having me, Robbie. It was such fun. 
And be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and you can check us out on Roku as well. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you later. Bye.